If you've got a Bible with you this morning, we're in Mark chapter 15 is where we're going to be as we begin the kind of final descent into the runway here as we begin to land the plane in Mark's gospel as we approach Easter Sunday. But Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, we'll read together down through verse 15. Um, we had a few technical difficulties this morning, and so there's not going to be anything on the screen behind me uh, today other than that picture, okay? And so Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, we'll read that through verse 15 together. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? But see how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. This is God's Word. And the title of this message that was sent out in the email earlier this week is Jesus, a Politician and a Terrorist. Now, I know that sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, right? Like Jesus, a politician, and a terrorist walk into a bar, okay? Um, but this text in front of us today is no laughing matter. Is no laughing matter. And this text teaches us a great deal about who Jesus is and how He's treated. And it lays before us, I believe, two choices that every faithful follower of Jesus, every disciple of Jesus, must make if they're to put their feet on the path of discipleship and continue pressing forward in their pursuit of who God has called them to be. And so this morning, I want us to look at those things. I want us to jump right in. Take a look at what the text teaches about Jesus and then the two choices it lays before us. So what does this text teach us about Jesus? It teaches us that Jesus is King, that He's innocent, that He's rejected, and that He's condemned. Those four things. He's King, He is innocent, He's rejected, and He is condemned. First of all, Jesus is King. In verse 2, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the King of the Jews? And Jesus' reply is very ambiguous because Jesus doesn't say yes and Jesus doesn't say no. Jesus says, that's what you say. Alright? He says, you have said so. Now listen, the reason Pilate asks him about this particular charge that the chief priests, scribes, and elders, the Sanhedrin, had brought before him is for this reason. Pilate is not concerned at all whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Pilate could care less 
about the charges of blasphemy that the elders and scribes and chief priests brought against Jesus. He is not concerned about whether Jesus is a powerful prophet or whether or not Jesus is even a sympathetic priest. He has no concern for the Jewish customs or beliefs. In fact, throughout his reign, he continually demonstrates as much. Let me give you a few examples. On one occasion... Pilate introduced into Jerusalem, right, the seat of, of Jewish worship and um, a, 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 at one point political autonomy. He introduces into Jerusalem these military standards or these poles that upon them had carved the bust of the emperor himself in Rome. And in so doing, he violates the Jewish law of prohibiting images or idols to be established within their worship and within their culture. Now, the result of that was the fact that many Jews rose up and they marched 70 miles to Pilate's residence outside Jerusalem where they protested peacefully for five days straight. All right, they made a 70-mile march. They didn't get in the car and drive. Right? They marched to Pilate's house and protested outside of his home for five days. And initially, Pilate said, round them all up, put them in the arena, and slaughter them. But whenever the Jewish people who had come to protest essentially laid their hands to their throats, Pilate recognized that they were willing to die for what they believed before they yielded to what he had established. And so he eventually relented from that order. On another occasion, he spent money from the temple treasury to build a 23-mile-long aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem. Now, once again, that move, him leveraging those funds out of the temple treasury for political purposes and infrastructure was met with protest. And this time, Pilate did meet the protest with violence. And we're told from ancient historians that when, the, when, when this particular uprising came to an end, there were large numbers of Jewish people who were slain by the Roman soldiers in their brutality, and that many who tried to flee whenever this, this violence erupted were trampled underfoot and crushed and killed. And just for good measure, one more. Once again, we're told even in Luke chapter 13 that whenever a number of Galileans brought offerings into Jerusalem to bring to the temple, Pilate has them slain, and he does not remove the bodies, but has their blood mixed with the blood of the sacrifices upon the altar, thus desecrating the altar in the Jerusalem temple. So you see, Pilate could care less about whether or not Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He could care less about their customs. He could care less about their laws for baiting images and idols. He could care less about their finances and what those monies were to be used for. He could care less about Jewish worship and the sacredness of the temple and the altar. The only thing Pilate is concerned about, the one thing that Pilate presses Jesus on is whether or not Jesus is a king. That's all he wants to know. Are you the king of the Jews? All Pilate is concerned about is if the charge of Jesus being a king with seditious intent to overthrow the Roman government is true. And look at Jesus' response. He doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He says, you have said so. Why is Jesus so ambiguous, ambiguous in his response? Right? 
because essentially what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, listen, I am not a threat to any one political established nation or kingdom, but simultaneously I am a threat to every political national entity. I'm not a threat to any one particular, but I'm a threat to everyone because as he says in John chapter 18, my kingdom is not of this world. So in other words, my kingdom doesn't have established boundaries. My kingdom doesn't have an established capital where I would rule from. My kingdom doesn't have a military force in order to conquer and exercise its will. My kingdom is not of this world. That's why he says, and we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, maybe even last week, that where, where Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, then we'd have swords, and we'd have spears, and we'd have chariots, and we'd have standards ourselves, and we'd be marching right, to Zion, to beautiful, beautiful Zion. right? We'd be marching in order to exercise our dominion. But my kingdom is not like that. The reason Jesus is so ambiguous is not because he's not sure whether or not he's king. He knows he is. He is certified as much all throughout Mark's gospel by his affirmation of him being the son of man. But the reason Jesus is so ambiguous is because Jesus says, listen, my kingdom is not of this world and I have not come to lead a revolution to put a new person in power, but a new power in power, a new way of understanding power in power. That's why Jesus has come. And make no mistake about it, his answer is ambiguous, but it is very clear that he is the king. Second of all, he is rejected. See, Jesus is rejected by the very people who, listen, who knew the Bible best, had the most scruples, okay? They're the most moral people on the face of the earth. And they were in the highest levels of religious leadership. This is who he's rejected by. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who were the three bodies that made up the Sanhedrin, the high religious council of the Jewish religion. We're told in verse 1 that as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes, the whole council. They bound Jesus and they led Him away to, be deliv- to deliver Him over to Pilate. Why did they bring Him to Pilate? Because they had found Him guilty of the charge of blasphemy and they wanted Jesus put to death, but they could not do so under Roman authority. They had to bring Him to Rome and have Rome execute Him because they did not have the right to do that themselves. So they bring Him to Pilate and they bring Him very early in the morning. Right? Because much of official business was conducted early in the morning in the Roman Empire so that they could have leisure mid-morning all the way through the evening. Okay? So all the important people did all their work like before noon. All right? And so they had the rest of the day off. And so early in the morning they bring Jesus before Pilate. So he's rejected by the people who knew the Bible best, had the most scruples, and were at the highest levels of leadership. But not only was he rejected by them, he was also rejected by the crowds. Because by the time you get down to the end of Mark chapter 15, or the text we read this morning, in verse 12, Pilate again says, what do you want me to do with this king of the Jews? And what does the crowd cry out? The crowd that the religious leaders had once been afraid of for fear that they would, because Jesus had been so popular, right? the crowd now turns against them, incited by the chief priest, to cry out what? 
crucify Him. We reject Him as our Messiah. He is not the one that we've been waiting for. So He's rejected by the Sanhedrin and He's rejected by the crowds. He's rejected by the elite. He's rejected by the common folk. And everyone in between rejects this King. Third, Jesus is innocent. Listen, Pilate clearly understood this clearly understood this, that the man before him was innocent of the charges that the Sanhedrin had brought against him, right? It's clear uh, in Mark and, and from the verse where Pilate in verse 10, he perceives, right? He has some discernment here. He's a man of the world. He knows what's going on here. He can see through the charade that they're bringing before him. So he perceives that the reason the chief priests have brought him is, is, is essentially out of spite, out of envy, out of jealousy, not seeking justice, because justice would have released this man as a free and innocent individual, but rather they come bringing charges out of envy and out of jealousy, because Jesus had become so popular, and they were afraid that he would, he would take people away from following the Sanhedrin. And so they, Pilate clearly sees that the death penalty is being pursued here out of envy. And it becomes even more abundantly clear in verse 14 when following the calls of the crowd for Jesus to be crucified, Pilate asks them this question, why? What evil has he committed? What atrocious act has he done that he deserves to be executed? And the reality of Jesus' innocence is front and center, not only in Mark's gospel, but in every gospel account. And in fact, in Matthew, it becomes even starker because by the end of Pilate's exchange with the chief priests and with the crowds, right, both levels of society, the elites and the common folks, right, by the end of that exchange, Pilate comes to, before the crowd, and he says, he takes a basin of water and he begins to wash his hands. And he stands before the crowd washing his hands saying, listen, you do what you want with him. I will yield to your will, but I'm innocent of this man's blood because he is innocent. Now, Pilate wasn't innocent of the man's blood. He actually delivered him over to be crucified, right? But there was this symbolic gesture to say, this man is innocent. Pilate knew that he was. Knew that he was. So Jesus is king. Jesus is rejected. And Jesus is innocent. He is a spotless lamb. The only innocent, truly innocent man to have ever lived. And yet he is condemned. In verse 15, we're told, and having scourged Jesus, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. Now listen, Mark is not interested in necessarily recounting all the gory details of what a flogging or a scourging involved in his day. Right? Mark is very succinct in his writing. In fact, most of the other gospel authors are as well. But people who are reading Mark's account and his original audience would have known very well what was involved in this torture. To be scourged in Jesus' day was a brutal experience. In fact, in ancient documents, we're told that women were exempt from that punishment, not only from receiving it, but from having to witness it. Even having to look on as it was being conducted. Okay? Right? And so, so they, 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 if, if they were caught in a crime, they would not receive that. And if it, was, if it was being done publicly in order to dissuade other people from committing that same crime, the women of the town or of the province would not have to watch that. In fact, we're told by one ancient historian, Suetonius, he even mentions that the emperor Domitian was horrified 
after witnessing an individual being scourged. Because this is what it involved. When a man was scourged, he would be stripped of all of his clothing. He'd be naked and then bound to a post. Secured there. And then he would be beaten with a leather whip. And in that leather whip would be woven bits of bone or rock or metal. And as the individual was beaten with that whip, bound to that post, right, this scourging would not only cut deeply into the skin and into the muscle tissue, but oftentimes it would begin to rip chunks of flesh out of the body of the individual who was being scourged. So much so that it would reveal bone and internal organs at times. In fact, many individuals who were scourged prior to crucifixion, which Rome, Rome did that to lessen the amount of time they were hanging on the cross when they were crucified. But many of the individuals didn't even survive the scourging to make it to the cross. It was a brutal experience. And Pilate, though he is innocent, hands Jesus over to the guards who would brutally torture him as he's condemned to death. Jesus is king. He's rejected as such. He is innocent, and yet he's condemned. Now, if you were just a, a, a regular average person reading this text, you may be tempted to think, listen, that Jesus was just a good Jew having a bad Friday, right? But Mark will not let us escape with that assumption, because there's, it seems like there's no rhyme or reason to this rejected king who is innocent being unjustly condemned. And yet Mark wants to know that in the midst of all of this evil, in the midst of all of this injustice, in the midst of the collusion between religion and politics in order to crucify an innocent man, Mark wants to know us that in the midst of all of that, God is still in control. He's still superintending. He's still governing everything that is taking place on that Friday. And here's why. Because at the beginning of the text and at the end of the text, we read about Jesus being delivered over to Pilate by the Sanhedrin. And then we read about Jesus being delivered to crucifixion by Pilate. He is delivered over. He is handed over. That's the language in the text. And the language of being delivered over throughout the Bible contains both a human and a divine component. For instance, perhaps the most clear place you see this is in Acts chapter 2 in verse 23 where Peter on the day of Pentecost stands before the crowd that's gathered there and he makes this declaration in Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus delivered up. Okay, so there were human agents who were doing the delivering. Who are those human agents? The Sanhedrin, the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Who are the human agents? Pilate. You have the religious authorities and the political authorities. These human agents who are handing him over, and yet Peter says this is taking place to fulfill the ordained plan, purpose, and will of God. So this is not just some good Jew having a bad Friday. This is the king of all creation rejected by the elites and rejected by the common folks who is innocent yet condemned and handed over to be executed all under the very plan of God. 
text tells us so much about Jesus. But listen, this text also tells us about two choices that we as His disciples must make if we're going to be faithful followers of His. You see, as this drama unfolds, here in the, you may say, well, well, I don't see any choices here that I have to make or any commands that I'm given, but I want you to consider something. On the basis of what Jesus says elsewhere, whenever He says these words, a servant is not greater than his master. Remember this? A servant is not greater than his master. If they, what? Persecuted me, they will, what? Persecute you. Jesus says, listen, you should expect the same kind of treatment as I received in this world. And if we take Jesus at His word, then there are two choices all of us have to make with regards to how we would faithfully follow Him as we expect to be treated in the same way that He is treated. And the first one is this. Uh, I'll say this. Pilate shows us one of those choices and the crowd shows us the other. And the first choice is this, that if we're going to have faithful followers of Jesus, expecting the same kind of treatment that Jesus himself received, though king and though innocent, is rejected and condemned, then we must choose endurance over expedience. We must choose endurance over expedience. Now, some of you are like, what in the world does that mean? Listen, expediency Okay, expediency is defined by Webster, whoever Webster is today, right? Um, But it's defined by Webster as the quality or state of being suited to the end in view. In other words, expediency is saying, I have this particular end in mind, a place that I want to reach, right? Okay, a a, a particular uh, destination that I want to arrive at. And so what is it that's going to help me get to that particular place? Right? That's expediency. It, it, it usually takes into account no consideration of whether or not it is right or whether or not it is just or whether or not it is true. But expediency is saying, this is where I want to get. How do I get there? What's going to help me get there the fastest way possible? The most practical and easiest way possible. That's expediency. And listen, we are all guilty of that in our lives. Okay? Now, sometimes expediency is right, okay? What's, what's the fastest way to reheat a meal from the night before? Throw it in the microwave. That's expedient. That gets food in your belly really quickly, all right? There's nothing wrong with that, okay? But there, listen, sometimes expediency is dead wrong. It is dead wrong. Listen, we're, 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 and we are all guilty of it. Right? Politicians choose expediency over endurance whenever they choose their platform and decision making based upon what will broaden their base. Right? So that they can get reelected or that they can secure a future in that party. That's expediency. Parents choose expediency over endurance times as well. I know I'm probably the only one. Okay? who has yielded to the tantrum of a two-year-old in the checkout line at Target, right? To keep a nuclear meltdown from taking place in the store, right? But parents at times choose expediency over endurance, right? What will get my children to comply in this moment, right? What will get my children to like me today, okay? 
Right? We choose expediency over endurance. Pastors at times choose expediency over endurance. In other words, what will attract more people? Okay? What can we give away next on Sunday morning to draw more people in? Right? Expediency over endurance in what is right and what is true and what is honorable and what is just. All kinds of individuals choose expediency over endurance, and Pilate does as well in the text. Look at verse 15. When Pilate comes to the end of his encounter with Jesus here in Mark's Gospel, the crowd is crying, crucify him. Pilate says, why? What has he done? This man is innocent. The only reason he knows, the only reason he's before him is out of envy and jealousy on behalf of the chief priest. And when Pilate hears the overwhelming voice of the crowd saying, crucify, crucify, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 15, verse 15, so Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. Pilate chooses expediency. In other words, what will keep a riot from erupting? What will keep all of turmoil and chaos from ensuing? In fact, we're told in Matthew's Gospel, uh, in Matthew chapter 27, that when Pilate, all this is taking place, and he, he decides to wash his hands of Jesus' blood, that he, he does so because he sees that they were on the precipice or on the threshold of a riot breaking out. Mark is ex- Matthew's explicit about that, whereas that's implied here in Mark's Gospel. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, to quiet them, to quell them. Just, I'm just going to give them what they want. And listen, while that may work in a particular moment, if you're a parent of a teenager who's given in to the tantrums in the checkout line every single time they were thrown at 2 and at 3 and at 4 and at 5 without ever considering the long-term implications of what that will shape that individual into being over the course of time, you have a monster on your hands now. Right? Who has always gotten their way at every juncture and at every turn. Because you chose expediency over enduring in what is right and what is true. Right? So listen, there are long-term implications. While expediency may, that child may love you in that moment. Okay? What you're creating is entitlement and you're creating this consumeristic mentality in them and you're creating a a sense of superiority where I'm always going to get whatever I want from whomever I want and whenever I want. Basically, you're creating a little Hitler. Okay? That's expediency. Endurance continues to hold course no matter how loud they scream, no matter how loud they cry, no matter how they lay down on the floor and pound the... I know that's never happened to any of you, but they lay down on the floor and pound the ground to get their way. And you just look at them like a fool. Right? And you say, get up, go get in the car. That's in, because you know what that future is going to be for that child if you continue to yield to those things. And the same is true for every disciple of Jesus. Like when faced with certain choices in life, right, expediency is dead wrong. It's dead wrong. 
What is going to get, if I'm single, what's going to get me a spouse the fastest way possible? That is scary. Right? Dead wrong. What's going to get me, if, if I'm, am I'm planting a church, what's going to build a large audience as fast as we possibly can? That is dead wrong. Right? There are certain areas of life that it's dead wrong in. And many of the choices that you and I face in the world as followers of Jesus require endurance and not expediency. Endurance and not expediency. So how do we endure? Listen, let me just say this to you. You cannot endure alone. I'll say it even, even stronger. You will not endure alone. Listen, we did a fire at the house last night in the fire pit in the backyard. Had some family over and some friends over. And we were doing some s'mores for dessert after dinner and built the fire back there. And it's crackling and popping and roaring. And um, eventually, you know, that thing begins to kind of die down a little bit as those, as those pieces of, 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 of log begin to break apart and fall into little smaller coals. And you see down the bottom these red hot, I mean white hot coals burning down there in the bottom of the fire pit. But if you take a poker and you slide one of those coals off to the edge of the fire pit, way over here, away from all the others, you know what happens to that? Slowly but surely, that coal begins to lose the retention of heat and light that it once had. And it slowly dies and goes out. But if you keep it with all the other coals... What happens to that same coal, right? It retains that light. It retains that warmth and that heat. And the same is true for you and I, that we will not endure alone, isolated, separated from the people of God, the covenant community. The only way to endure, to retain light and heat in a cold and dark world is to retain connection with and involvement in the people of God within a local church. Right? Which is why it's important to actually be here weekly. I know we've been in the midst of a pandemic. Listen, I get that. Right? We're, we're a little over a year now away from Saturday nights, me sending an email to everyone saying, hey, guess what? We're not meeting tomorrow. <laughs> okay? And for 12 weeks... We live streamed from Justin's living room, Justin and Melinda All's living room, okay? And at first, everybody was like, oh, this is, this is awesome, man. We in our PJs on the couch, and we're singing, and we're watching, and then slowly but surely, that fatigue set in. People were like, when can we meet again? You know why? Because you were slid over into the corner of the fire pit. Not connected not invested relationally, seeing other people who are walking with Jesus, honoring Jesus, in choosing endurance over expediency in their challenges of discipleship. You're not around them. You're not communicating with them. Not communing with them on a regular basis. And as a result, you begin to sense the, at times, apathy that grows in that isolation. And I will say this, listen, I know there's some people who convictionally, convictionally, even today, are still not, have not yet returned. 
right? Because they have held the conviction that they want to be fully vaccinated before they come back. And I understand that. And we respect that. And we give space for that. And there are people who said, hey, listen, we've made it this far and we're, we're going to hold the line until we feel like we're ready to come back. And that's fine. But listen, the people I am most concerned about today are the people whose children are back in public school and they're playing sports and they're going to extracurricular activities and they're going to work in their offices and workplaces and they're traveling and going on vacations and you see them at restaurants, dining out in the community and yet they're not back in church. Those are the individuals I'm most concerned about. So if that's you, I want you to consider whether or not in this at risk of using the term that has been overused in the last year, this unprecedented moment. In this moment, What would it take to begin to step back into the covenant community to reunite yourself with a local body where you can love and be loved, serve and be served, care and be cared for, speak truth into people's lives to encourage that flame to burn bright and strong so there'll be light and heat where there has been a sense of apathy. Because listen, no matter how expositional the preaching, no matter how good the music, sitting on your couch is not the same as sitting among the saints and knowing their stories and their struggles, knowing their burdens, and yet hearing their voices lifted to God around you. That's not the same. Endurance over expediency requires community in a local church. Second choice that we have to make is this, to choose the true Son of God over the popular one. In verses 6 and 7, we're told that it was Pilate's custom at the Passover feast every year to release one of the prisoners that had been arrested and charged and convicted. It was a time in Israel in which they celebrated their deliverance from Egypt, right? God was merciful and brought them out. And so every year, Pilate was like, I'll show them how merciful I am. I'll let go one of these prisoners. Right? That'll give me some courage and favor, right? In the eyes of those individuals, those Jewish people there in Jerusalem. And so in verses 6 and 7, we're told there was a man in prison whose name was Barabbas, who had been involved in, involved in an insurrection and in an attempt to overthrow Roman authority, Roman rule, the Roman government there in Jerusalem. And during that uprising, he had committed a murder, taken someone's life. And he's sitting in prison. In our day and age, we might call him a domestic terrorist. That's why Jesus, politician, you get where the title comes from now, right? Now, we don't know much about Barabbas outside of this information, but he plays a very significant part in the story of Jesus being condemned to death. He shows up in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all mention him by name, and they all write about that fateful day in which his sentence is commuted, essentially, 
and Jesus would be condemned in his place. And in Mark chapter 15, verse 11, it says the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him, Barabbas, have, or have Pilate released for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. So Pilate, verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Now, listen, names always interest me in the Bible. Right? Because oftentimes, if not most times, they shed some light on and amplify the depth of meaning in a particular passage and understanding what the author was communicating as he wrote. And the, name, the same is true here, because the name Barabbas is a Hebrew term. It's a compound word. Right? We'll do a little grammar this morning. Com- you know what that means? You take one and another and you squeeze them together. Compound word. Bar in Hebrew meant son. And Abba in Hebrew means, some of you know this, father. Okay, So Barabbas' name literally in Hebrew is this, son of the father. That was his name. And you put those two words together. And yet Mark has been showing us all throughout his gospel account that there is a true son of the father. So whenever we read this text at the surface level, we go, okay, uh, Jesus is, re- is condemned. Okay, uh, uh, The innocent man is condemned and the guilty man is released. Yes, that is true. But I want you to consider who the crowd calls out for to be released. Right, here's a man who had committed a murder in the insurrection, had been con- convic- charged and convicted, and now he is sitting in prison. Right? He would have been had incredible zealot-type leanings. Zealots in, the, in ancient Judaism were those individuals who thought, man, we've got to overthrow Rome, we've got to plot, we've got to scheme, we're hiding in caves, we're like stockpiling munitions. That was the zealots in Jesus' day. Okay? And so he, this is the type of individual Barabbas was. Somebody who really was a threat to overthrow the Roman political establishment. And what, is, what, is, what do they do with him? They say, give us that guy. Give us that son of the Father. So what do you want me to do with Jesus, the King of the Jews? What do you want us to do with Him? We want you to kill Him. We want you to crucify that son of the Father. The true son of the true Father in heaven. The crowd essentially chooses the popular son of the Father over the true one. And listen, crowds have been doing that ever since. There are all sorts of popular notions of Jesus that people would prefer to the true one as presented by the gospel accounts. Okay, We don't have time to go into every possible scenario because there's a lot of them, right? but let me give you a few. First of all, there are folks who love the idea of a very docile Jesus. Okay? So like Jesus is like Mr. Rogers, okay? He's got a cardigan and he's got a tie and he just kind of like, you know, shows up and teaches good little moral lessons and he doesn't really confront people, doesn't challenge people. There's no conviction with this Jesus. He's just kind of, you be you, right? You go do you and you'll be all right, right? The very docile Jesus, but that is not at all what the Gospels present of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, the, the King of all creation. Okay, that he actually, when we saw earlier in Mark's gospel, whenever he sees 
um, injustice, he goes into the temple, he turns over the tables, and he drives out those money changers, and he says, you've turned my father's house, which is meant to be a house of prayer, into a den of robbers, as you're extorting people of their money and abusing the sacrificial system. Right? That is not a docile Jesus. On the other side, there are folks who have a militant picture of Jesus. Right? And so he is the standard bearer for any revolt they want to participate in, in any culture, in any place, in any time. Right? And yet, you cannot make Jesus out to be a militant figure from the Gospel accounts. Even though he turns over tables, he stands before Pilate here being accused of being a king with seditious intent by the chief priest. And what does he do? Like a lamb before its shearers, he remains silent. My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, we'd have swords and tanks and guns just like you. He's not a docile Jesus and he's not a militant Jesus. Listen, he is not a democratic Jesus. Okay? Right? That is has unconcerned about life in the womb but only concerned about the poor and the oppressed. But he's also not a Republican Jesus, okay? who is unconcerned about the poor and the marginalized, but only concerned about, the, about life in the womb. He's concerned about, he is pro-life from womb to tomb all the way. Right? So you can't make him out to be your political party standard bearer. You can't make him out to be a militant Jesus. You can't make him out to be a docile Jesus. He's the true Son of the Father. And yet so often, based upon all of our other identities that we subsume into our Christianity, we try to make Jesus the standard bearer for all of our other affiliations. And choosing a popular notion of Jesus over the true one. So the question for every disciple and the choice for every disciple is which son of the Father will you follow? The popular one or the true one? Listen, in this text, I said before, it's, 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 it, the title sounds like a joke, but it's no laughing matter. Because there are many people who, who believe with the depths and fiber of their being, they're following Jesus. When they're following a popular notion of Jesus, not the one presented on the pages of the Gospels. And for them, they must repent. So this is who Jesus is. He is king, though a rejected one. He is condemned despite the fact that he is innocent. And if his followers are treated in the same way that he is, if we're to align with the true Jesus and not caricatures of him from popular culture or from our other smaller identity camps or affiliations, then we must, we must choose endurance over expediency. I'm going to pray for us this morning. And the band's going to come and lead us and then we're going to receive the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Father, today we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Son. 
Thank you for your Spirit who illumines the Scriptures to us and exalts and glorifies Jesus. Raises Him high. And I pray that we as a church would continue to do so. That we would see Him as King. Though rejected and despised among men. That He is treasured and honored in your sight. And that we would see Him as one who is the truly innocent. Who was condemned in the place of the truly guilty. And that because of that. That we would lay our lives down before Him, give Him our allegiance and affection, our love and our loyalty. And we would follow the true Jesus and not some facsimile thereof. By enduring. By enduring in what is true and what is right and what is just. Rather than choosing the path of expediency to get us where we want to be as quickly as we possibly can. Father, give us grace to wrestle with the truths of this text and the realities of our lives. And to become more and more like the one that we follow. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.